You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. All right, go ahead and open your Bibles. We've got one verse to read together this morning. I cannot tell you how happy it made me a few minutes ago when Justin said tonight. I'll tell you why, because in first service, I said tonight. So I'm glad I'm not the only one. We're going down. We're going down together, Justin. Revelation chapter 21. In a lot of Bibles, just go to the back cover and turn one page back. Chapter 21, verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Lord, I just thank you so much for your word, Lord. I'm so thankful to be able to, Lord, have information about what heaven is going to be like, Lord. And as we talk about that this morning, Lord, I pray that the church is blessed. I pray that the church is encouraged. Lord, at the end of the day, Lord, I pray that we are able to just um, pursue holiness, Lord, on a level that we never, never thought was possible. All this we ask in your name. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so all of the best books in the world have one thing in common. They have a happy ending. Who wants to read a book that does not have a happy ending? Well, guess what? We have a fantastic book, and it's one of those books with a happy ending. Now, most of the time, you want to start at the beginning of the book and go all the way through to get your happy ending. But we're going to do things in reverse, and we're going to skip to the good parts today. So we're in the last two chapters of the entire Bible. Revelation 21 and 22, it's the climax of the entire book. It's the climax of the entire human history. Okay, Every prophet, every disciple, every follower of Jesus has their eyes on one thing, and that is the goal, which is heaven, eternity with God. In the same way a sprinter runs for the finish line, he doesn't think about anything else. He has that finish line zoned in, and that's what he's running for, and he's leaving everything else behind. That needs to be our mindset when we live life with our mind on heaven. When we talk about God, and we talk about being with God forever, it generally spurs two responses. The first one is, all right, we get to talk about heaven. This is my thing. I'm so excited. This is where I thrive. And then there's the other one where it's like, oh, man, this is going to be boring. Uh, And spending eternity with God is pretty uninteresting. I don't really want to do it. Now, let's have a show of hands. Raise your hand if your personality is in group number one where you hear heaven and, boy, your wheels just start spinning. All right, that's very good. I cannot relate to you at all. I'm in class number two here. Uh, class number two wakes up in the morning and really has to get going just to have a heart that wants to be obedient to the Lord uh, at all. Uh, so today, I hope this message is for the group in for number two. Those that really struggle that think, oh, great, we're going to talk about heaven for all of eternity. There's going to be little angels playing horrors. Blah, blah, it's so boring. This is for you today. Group number one. You're going to stand and cheer whatever anybody talks about, so you're not really that, you're not our concern today, but I know you're going to love this message anyways because that's your personality. So, 
Chapters 21 and 22 are for those that really struggle having a heart for the Lord. That's what we want to talk about today. So, chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Okay, let's stop there. I don't know about you, but I love new things. And when we start learning, when we start reading about heaven and earth being new, that's what gets me excited. One of, my, uh, one of the things that I love, one of my weaknesses, is getting a new book. I buy more books than I can read. I will buy books knowing I'm not going to read it because I just love the feeling of having a new book. The smell, the way it feels, it's kind of weird, I know, but I just love having a new book. And the thought of all of this information that's in this book being in my brain, for some reason, it excites me. Now, I'm starting to get to the age where it doesn't all go in my brain, and what goes in usually exits the next day, uh, but that's neither here nor there. So, another thing that I love is I love weather change, the changing of the seasons. I'm a pretty impatient person, so right about the time I start getting impatient with the weather, I get sick of the hot weather, God changes the seasons for me. And that is something that I absolutely love and absolutely need. And for those of you who have been studying the Weather Channel, guess what this Wednesday is? The start of our cold weather. And if you'll look weeks in advance, we're still in the 80s for the next couple of days, and it hits 75, and then it goes down from there. And now I'm a cold weather person, so I'm getting excited about this cold weather. However, come February or March, I'll be whistling a different tune, and I'll be wishing for a new season. But that's the way God works. It's almost like... It's almost like God knew exactly what he was doing when he created the seasons. Am I right? Very good. I also love when, as a church, we start a new book of the Bible. Uh, Again, I I get bored really easily. I'm kind of impatient. So when we spend weeks or months in one book, it's fantastic. We love hearing from Pastor Phil. But man, when we get towards the end of the book, I'm ready to be done, and I'm ready to start a new one. We just finished the book of... You're going to have to start over. First Corinthians. Any idea what the next book we're going to go through is? Second Corinthians. I'm pretty sure. Has he announced otherwise? I think it's Second Corinthians. Okay. Second Corinthians. All right. So it's going to be a wonderful thing. I'm excited about hearing about Second Corinthians. I'm ready to start some new, fresh material. You know why? Because I like new things. Revelation tells us that everything is going to be new. There's going to be a new earth. That is fantastic. We all know this one's not doing so well, right? So we cannot wait to get a new earth. But there's something else that's going to be new. Did anybody catch that? A new heaven. Now, raise your hand if you read that and you're like, uh, what? Why do we need a new heaven? What's wrong with the one that we have now? Is it broken? Actually, it is. Let me tell you something. Not a lot of people realize we get a little bit of insight in the book of Job, we learned something pretty interesting about Satan. Okay, We know he was a fallen angel, but guess what Satan still has access to? The throne of God. Now, I've read enough of the Bible to know that God does not want Satan anywhere near him. Okay, So Satan still comes and goes. So there's something about heaven that still needs to be done away with. And we're told later in the chapter, uh, later in these chapters, that no sin, no sadness, no problems or anything like that are going to be allowed into the new heaven or new earth. So guess what? Though Satan is there now, and maybe today he is trying to distract us as a church, trying to distract me as a teacher, which he's done a great job so far, 
He uh, won't be in the new heaven. He won't be in the new earth. Um, some more questions come to my mind, actually. When we think about a new heaven and a new earth, uh, I, like to, I like to think and ponder about weird things. And one of the, some of the questions that come up is, uh, some of the questions that come up are, is, earth, is the new earth going to be exactly the same way it is now? Is it just going to be restored? Is it going to be renewed? Like, what's the deal? Or is it going to be totally different? I mean, is it going to feel like we're living in the twilight zone or in another dimension? Or here's a weird question. What about this? I want to know your thoughts on this. What if we get to the new earth and there's no oceans? Am I crazy? Raise your hand. Or raise your hand. No, don't raise your hand. Shake your head if you think that's a crazy thought. No oceans in heaven. That's okay. I'm kind of a crazy guy. I think of weird things. Well, let's continue. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. Gotcha. I gotcha. Some of y'all were laughing at my crazy thoughts and you didn't read far enough ahead. There is not going to be a sea in the new earth. Let's think about that. How many of you guys have been surfing and love surfing? We have several hands in here. Well, you better surf while you can, because guess what? No opportunity for surfing in heaven. I know Pastor Phil loves to surf. He's actually crazy about it. When he was on the mission field, he surfed all the time. When he goes to California visiting family, guess what he does? He surfs. Do not tell Pastor Phil about this verse. I'd be concerned for his mental health, and I'm concerned that this would be a deal breaker for him wanting to go to heaven. So uh, we'll keep that between me and you. So, there are two views when it comes to this sea idea. What in the world? Why is there no sea? Why, why did God go out of his way to specifically list there would be no sea? Well, number one, the first theory is that, well, there's just not going to be a sea in heaven. So that's number one. There's literally not going to be a sea, not going to be oceans. Maybe that's right. Maybe it's wrong. I don't know. Here's the second theory. The second theory is, well, it's not really talking about a literal sea. You can get into how the, the Hebrew text and, and tradition was the Jewish people. Um, the Jewish people, every time they used the word sea, or oftentimes when they used the word sea, they were talking about great evils, the, the depths of the sea, this crazy, horrible, disastrous things. Okay? So perhaps saying there is not going to be a sea is God's way of basically saying there's not going to be any problems. No problems in heaven. No problems in the new earth, right? Well, here's my pickle. I'm just not as smart as a lot of these theologians that write about this stuff. So here's what I'm going to do. It says there's not going to be a sea. So you know what I'm going to say? There's not going to be a sea. And we'll just roll with that. Verse 2. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, 
Behold, I am making all things new. There's the new word again. I like that. He also said, write this down, for these, are, for these, things are, these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, I can just see John looking up and seeing this gigantic city coming down from heaven. Now, can you imagine the anticipation he was feeling, wondering, what in the world am I about to see? What is this this glorious wonder I'm about to see? And I get to write about it. I told you a while back that the anticipation of a gift is oftentimes as good as the gift. And while we're here on this earth, sometimes the anticipation is actually better than the gift because we get the gift and we're like, well, that's kind of a bummer. Does that happen to you? Or you want to go on a vacation. You're like, oh, I can't wait to get there. And you get there and it's like, well, this is a bummer. Well, my daughter loves her birthday parties. Hope you remember me telling you that when we are getting ready for her birthday parties, all we have to do is say, Kate, your birthday party is just in a few weeks. And she goes nuts. She cannot wait. The anticipation and the excitement of knowing what's coming down the road, oh, it just blows her mind. She just screams and she'll run around. She just goes crazy. I don't really understand it. I don't know if it's a possession thing or what, but she just loves her birthday parties. It doesn't matter if I tell her, Kate, your birthday party is 11 days away. She screams like crazy. It doesn't matter if we tell her it's 11 months away. She screams with the same excitement. Now, let me tell you this. I think we should scream with that same excitement when we talk about heaven. If we don't, then we have a very improper view of what heaven's going to be like. And I think John felt this in the same way. Romans 8 talks about how we groan eagerly awaiting for heaven, awaiting for our new bodies to be in heaven forever. It compares it to that strong anticipation of joy as a woman who is in labor. Now, that's not something I personally have experienced, but I've been told it's pretty cool. Not the pain part, the anticipation. Don't write letters, please. So the angel tells John to write all of this down because it is trustworthy and true. Now, I don't know about you, but I love serving a God who tells the truth and always does what he says he's going to do. Amen? I love that. We can always trust that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. We don't have to worry about God pulling a fast one on us. We don't have to worry about a little fib or maybe a little improper description here and there. What God says goes 100% of the time. Verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. And he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates 
and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, it had the names of the 12 tribes of the son of Israel, the sons of Israel. And on the east, there were three gates. And on the north, there were three gates. And on the south, there were three gates. And on the west, there were three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. What a sight he is looking at. And on them were the 12, the 12, uh, the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Verse 15. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. And the city lies four square. Its length is the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. We'll get to that in a minute because no one, including me, knows what in the world that is. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measures its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a gate, the fourth emerald, followed by a bunch of things that I cannot even pronounce, onyx and beryl and topaz. Verse 21, and the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each of the gates, listen to this, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold and transparent as glass. Wow. So if you want to know what the capital city of heaven on earth is going to be, there's your description. And I hope you were as confused as I was the first time I read that, because it's a lot of lengths and measurements that make no sense to us today, because that's not what we use. We use inches. We're America. We use inches and feet, and right? That's what we do. Well... These lengths were approximately 1,400 miles long. That's the length of the city. Now, if you're reading, you might be like me and think, all right, party, we're going to have gold, we're going to have jewels. Man, being in heaven is the life, right? But I wonder if God had a different idea in mind and why he told us all these details, which, first of all, Can you imagine the size of the oysters to produce the pearls (laughs) to make one gate per pearl? Unless these are really tiny gates, which I don't think they are. These pearls are going to be massive. It's just going to be something that we think, wow, this is incredible. Never saw anything like this while we were on the old earth. Can you imagine looking down at your feet? And the gold on the streets is so pure and so fine that you see the most perfect reflection. Or even more, and I don't even understand this, but gold being so pure and so fine that you can see through it. That kind of breaks my brain a little bit, especially from all the gold that I've ever seen. But so pure that you can see through it. That's incredible. But here's what I think God had in mind when he was telling us all these details. Maybe this is God's way of telling us, hey, you know those precious and rare jewels that you just love and that you spend all of your money to buy? You know all of those precious minerals that you start wars over? Yeah, well, uh, we use those for gates and asphalt. Think about it. Heaven is going to be so amazing 
that our most precious atoms here in this earth are going to be asphalt in heaven. Not only that, but the thing that is going to be most precious in heaven is God himself. There are aspects of who God is, if you read through the Bible, that are just incredible. And what does the Bible say? We see God as if we're looking into a dim mirror. So we're not even looking at him. We're looking at him through a mirror, but not just a regular mirror, a dim mirror. God's going to be incredible. So not only is this city amazing with all of its jewelry and all of its fine gold, but this city is massive. I want you to think about this. This 12,000 stadia, whatever that is, don't get distracted by that. The smart people tell us it's 1,400 miles. So it's 1,400 miles long. That is from Paris to about Los Angeles on the West Coast. This is a city. Think about Dallas. Think about New York. Think about Houston. Think about Bogota. They're all the same. 1,400 miles. Can you imagine having a city that takes days just to drive through in a car? But don't stop there. It's as wide as it is long. So picture a map of the United States. You start in Paris. You go all the way over to Los Angeles. Then you got to go north all the way up past the Canadian border, 200 miles into Canada. Then you take another right, if you still have gas in your car, take another right, keep going east until you get almost to the Great Lakes, and then head south back to Paris. That is the size of the New Jerusalem. Is that not incredible? Okay, well, this next part is going to blow your mind. Not only is it as long as it is wide, but it's as high as it is wide and long. So let's think about this. Let's think about the tallest buildings. This right here is what we're looking at. You're looking at a globe, and this gigantic new city is sitting on the United States. Now just think about how long that elevator ride is going to be. Now I will tell you this. Jesus has been working on this city for 2,000 years. So here's what I can guarantee you. Maneuvering around that city is not going to be a problem at all. It is going to be fantastic. So that gives you a little bit of an idea how big that city is. And some of you think, oh, man, you could probably see that from space. Actually, you can see that from Pluto. It's not going to be a problem. And as someone blurted out in first service, Pluto's not a planet. Like, that has any relevance to what we're talking about. <laughs> you science hater. No, I'm just kidding. Verse 22, chapter 21, verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, the God Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city had no need of sun. Listen to this. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. Verse 26. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it. No Satan cometh before the throne of God here. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, 
nor anyone who does not or nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the lamb's book of life okay so let's see how close you were paying attention so we know in the new earth there's not going to be an ocean did you catch what else there's not going to be there's going to be no need for a sun or a moon now, let's think about that. How, many t- how much time in your lifetime have you spent gazing at those three things and their beauty? My guess is a lot. Heaven is so magnificent that those three items were completely left off the list. Heaven is going to be fantastic. So, sorry for, sorry for the sun and the moon. You get stuck in the corner with uh, the sea as well. Now, why is there not going to be a need for a sun and a moon? All throughout the Bible, we see God's glory shining like a white, hot fire, so bright that no one can even look at him without being consumed. This reminds me of Moses. Everyone knows who Moses is. Moses is the one God used to bring the people out of Egypt away from slavery, into a new land of promised freedom. Well, as they were on their way, he had rescued them, taken them through the Red Sea, rescued them multiple times, given them food. He's now given them the law to obey. And here is Moses, who has seen some of the greatest miracles ever recorded. And Moses just still isn't quite happy. He comes before God and he says, God... Please grant my one request. I just want to see you face to face. So Moses, this early on, had his eye on the prize. He knew what was waiting on him. And he knew it was going to be way better than what he was experiencing, even with all of these miracles. So God responds to Moses and says, Moses, I'm sorry, but you are not going to be able to Uh, see my face. Trust me, you don't want to. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put you down in a little crack in a big boulder, and I'm going to put my hand over that that little area. I'm going to cover you, and I'm going to pass by. And as I pass by, I'm going to remove my hand, and you're going to get a quick glimpse of me from the back after I've already passed by. Now, that doesn't sound like what Moses was asking for, does it? But Moses accepts. And when that happens, something very unique happens to Moses. And he didn't even realize it until he was around other people. Just seeing the back of God, the back of his glory, as he passed by, Moses' face turned bright, bright, bright. It was glowing. Now, I don't know about you, but if I walked up to someone and I saw that their head was glowing, I would probably run in the other direction. And guess what? That's what the people of Israel did too. It scared them to death. They were worried about Moses, and they were worried about themselves. They thought they were going to be consumed. So what Moses had to do was put a veil over his face. So Moses, seeing just the back part of God as he passed by, not even seeing him face to face, it completely changed who he was physically to the degree that he had to cover himself just to talk to other people. It also reminds me of Paul on the road 
On the road to Damascus, where was Paul going? To kill Christians. His favorite pastime. He loved killing Christians. He hated Jesus. He had seen this Jesus come and just ruin his church, his synagogue. And he hated Christians. He thought they were liars. He thought they were just terrible for the world. So he was on his way to kill or imprison some more. And Jesus appears to Paul. He appears as a light so bright that it instantly blinds Paul for several days. God is so wonderful and so holy that he radiates with the whitest and most pure light imaginable. Now compare that to the sun. Imagine getting up in the morning and it's dark outside and you turn on your lamp. You have light. And man, are you thankful for that lamp because now you can see, you can read, you can play with your kids, you can cook, you can do all these things because of this lamp. But what happens when the sun comes up? Not, this lamp no longer becomes, it's no longer a wonderful thing, and now it's a hassle. You've got you to shut off so you don't have to pay for electricity. It completely turns your mindset on that lamp. You go from thankful for this lamp to, oh, I'm just going to shove it in the corner until the sun goes down. That is the comparison made between God and the sun. When the sun comes out, you can just discard that lamp. When God shows up, you can discard the sun. So once again, sun, moon, and sea, you are jobless. But you're important to us now. So enjoy it while you can. Chapter 22, verse 1. Stay with me. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and its servants will, will worship him. They will see him face to face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now we get a look inside the city. And what do we see? A giant throne with the river of life coming out of it, straight through the middle of the street, right in the middle of the city. Now think of all the things that we spend our life doing, trying to make the most out of our lives. We take jobs, we spend our money, we play video games, we go on vacations. Man, we want, we want to make the most of this life. We want our life to count. None of that will be necessary in heaven. We will have a river of streaming waters that give life. Not only that, you can come anytime you want, and it will be without price. I love the marketing that God does for that river. Life-giving, flowing water that glistens bright like crystal. Does that make you thirsty or what? Yeah, I think Gatorade and Aquafina have a lot to learn from God. 
I was actually staying with a friend recently, and he was telling me about his house that he had built, and he was telling me about his favorite thing about the house. He had gotten a contract on the house early enough to where he could draw up uh, new plumbing plans. He bought this water filter, this gigantic machine. I don't know. This isn't my level of expertise, but whatever it is, something important to purify your water. And oh, he was just going on and on about how he's a water snob, whatever that means. And he's got to drink the best water. So he's got this machine, all the water filters do. And it goes under the slab to the sink and under the slab to the refrigerator and under the slab over here and over there. I didn't have the heart to tell him that it tastes like water hose water, but he probably wouldn't care. But I can guarantee you this. When he tastes those crystal waters, he will never think of his water ever again. I absolutely love reading about what heaven is going to be like. And I want you to be there with me. This angel ends the letter with some very sobering words, and we'll close with this. He tells John, write these things down and do not seal this up. Let everyone read what you write so that they will know. But then he reminds us that sadly, not everyone is going to be able to get in. Only those who put their trust in Jesus Christ. Verse 6. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. If he goes out of his way to say that, you know he knows what he's talking about. These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am like you. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of prophecy in this book. For the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil and let the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right. And let the holy still be holy. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense, recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the alpha and omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Everything since the beginning of time has been about this moment. Blessed are those who wash their robes, which is a fancy way of saying, ask for forgiveness. So that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit of the brides, uh, the spirit of the bride say, "Come." The spirit and the bride say, "Come." And let though let the one who hears say, "Come." And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires to take the water of life, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. 
I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things, he, he who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with us all. Amen. Now, it is not enough to want to get into heaven. It's not enough. Because one day, everyone is going to want to get in. Wanting to get in is not enough. Now, there is a right way to respond to these last two chapters, and there is a wrong way. There's a right way and a wrong way. Now, notice what John did. We see John as this super holy guy that did everything right, and here he is, he gets this vision of what heaven's going to be like, and he's writing it down. But how did he react? How did he respond? He did the wrong thing. When he saw this, he was just blown away. What did he do? He immediately got down on his knees and started worshiping the angel, the messenger. And what did the messenger say? No, 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 no. Hey, I'm one of you. I get, to enjoy, I get to enjoy all this just like you do. Don't worship me. Worship God. I would just encourage you that Jesus is coming soon. And you do not have time to waste on other things. Make sure you get this right. Because he is definitely coming soon. Now, Drew... I, think, I don't think that God's coming soon. I think it's going to be another 50 years. Or I don't really believe in the pre-tribulation rapture. So I think it's probably going to be 500 years. You know what? I think maybe it's going to be a million years before Jesus comes back. That's great, but you're not going to be here for that. Your time is expiring way before that million years gets here. So regardless of when Jesus comes back, Your clock is ticking. We do not live forever, so we cannot waste time. We are to love God with all of our heart. And John, who is writing this letter, in another one of his famous letters, 1 John, he describes what that is. He says, This is the love of God that we keep his commands. How do we know if we are living for the Lord? How do we know if our faith is right? If we keep his commands. I hope everyone in this room keeps his commands. I hope everyone in this room has faith and trust that the Lord will take them through to the time we all get to walk into the gates of heaven. Not guarded by Peter, by the way, guarded by angels. Because it is going to be a fantastic thing. And I hope everyone in this room is there with me. Amen? Amen.